0: Today's passage comes out of Acts 17, 16 through 34. It says this. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, and he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it. because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising this man from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysus, the Arapagite, and a woman named Amaris, and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray, church. God, again, we thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you for this place and this time where we may gather with your people, but also, more importantly, that we would meet with you. Lord Jesus, as we have as we sung worship to you, rightfully so, and as we have opened up your word for revelation and instruction, we ask, would you continue, because you already are, would you continue to meet with us? Change us, Jesus, from the inside out. Fill us with your hope and your strength, your knowledge, your love, and your care, and your gentleness. Fill us with all the things that we so desperately need and all the things that, in your delight, you want to fill us with. Come, Holy Spirit, continue to reveal our Lord and Savior to us, that we will walk out of here or we log off online changed. What an audacious expectation that we would be seek to be changed every time we would meet with our God. But that's what we ask for, Jesus. We know that you can. We know that you alone can. And so we love you, and we are so glad that you love us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Friends, you may be seated. And for the final time this morning, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Customary sip. And we begin. Uh, for those who have been around, you know we have been in the book of Acts going through what we are calling the mission of the Spirit. For those of you who do not, have not been around or are newer, one, you can catch up all you want, it's all online. But two, more importantly, this is what you need to know this morning. The mission of the Spirit is the same today as it was then. What God is up to today is the same thing he was up to then. He is building his church. He is calling all men and women unto him. He is fixing what we broke, and he is turning the upside down world right side back up. That is the mission of the Spirit, to see that fulfilled until all of the world would know Jesus, and Jesus then would come back. But to start this morning, to really dive into this passage we just read, which is a pretty heavy one, we need to ask ourselves this. Why are little kids afraid of the dark? We have all had that experience, either as kids or if you're a parent with your kids, where it is dark, they want the night light, and that's okay. But they also find some kind of comfort in something, a stuffed animal. I particularly was one of the ones who hid under the blanket because if I can't see it, it can't see me. Right, we all get that. But there's a reason kids are afraid of the dark. And it's not just because it's dark. Because what is darkness? It is just the absence of light. How can you be afraid of the absence of something? What kids are really afraid of when they say, I'm afraid of the dark, is they're afraid of the unknown. The darkness hides things from us. And when it is hidden, it is not made known to us. It is invisible. We aren't aware of it. And we are so afraid, quite often, of the thing that we think can get us. Think about it. When you turn off that light, when you were a kid or if you have kids, travel back into that time. As soon as those lights go off, what really changed in the room? Not much. Well, basically nothing. The lamp and the dresser, the toys, the mess or the not mess, whatever, it's all basically there. But now you can't see it. Right? For some of us, as we get older, we're like, ah, oh, yes, bliss and darkness. I don't have to see all the things I have to clean up. <laughs> but for a kid, they're going, no, 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 I want to be able to see The unknown scares me. And it makes sense, because so often the thing that is not known to us is the thing that we fear will be master over us. Right? Think about it. All human society has been an endeavor to become master of the world around us. Because we believe deep down, if I am Lord over it, it cannot be Lord over me. To one extent, that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Think science, science is just trying to explore and understand the world around us, that makes sense. But to another degree, when we trust this lie that says, if I can master the unknown, it cannot master me. Friends, that's a logical fallacy. It's a big fancy word that says that that sentence doesn't ever make sense, nor is it ever true. By definition, if you can't master the unknown, Or if you could master the unknown, it's not unknown anymore. And there will always be unknown in your lives. The older we get, the more we understand this. Kids are afraid of the dark as they start to pick up on this. And they get to a certain age and they realize there is more out there that is outside of my control and I have no hope of dealing with it. It makes sense why they're afraid. And we see all of that come up in our passage today. And so, friends, this morning... I'm going to ask you to be little kids again. To ask yourselves, why am I afraid of the dark? What is out there in the unknown that scares me and keeps me from God? Because this morning in our passage, we see a lot of things, but this is the thing we're going to hone in on. The mission of the Spirit is to make known, to make known, catch the play of words, is to make known the supremacy, the almightiness, the grandness, the oneness of God. Yahweh, Jesus Christ. So you ready? No one responds. Cool. (laughs) Let's try again. Are you ready? I asked you to do a really hard thing to think back to when you were a kid, or if you are a kid. Most of you know, we like to joke, we're kids at heart. I asked you to be a kid at heart again. When we know that Yahweh reigns sovereign over all, you're going to see these four things show up time and time and time again in this passage. Most of the time when we're up here and we're preaching, we have points that we work through to help keep us organized and on track. This morning is not necessarily the case. There's not one central point besides this one. But these things are going to be themes that we see come up again and again and again, so I want you to keep awareness of them. When we know that Yahweh reigns sovereign over all, when we know that God is supreme, it keeps us humble. We know we are secure in him. We understand what our purpose is, and it keeps our focus on where it needs to be. So humility, security, purpose, and focus. Things that we all so desperately want and need, and by God's grace we can have. So here we go. Verse 16 starts off with this sentence where it says, Paul's spirit is provoked. Friends, when, when you read a sentence like that, Especially when a man or a woman of God walking in the power of the Holy Spirit is somehow now on edge, there's usually a reason for that. The scriptures make it very clear that Paul is on edge because the city is full of idols. But the only reason he's even aware and sensitive to that is because there is discernment flowing through him. He now understands that he is walking into a place that has a lot of darkness, and that's why his spirit is provoked. He sees a lot of, and we'll have a picture of it in a second, idol worship. Literal idols. Why was Athens, this great city of the once Greek empire and now still the Roman empire, why is it so full of idols? Because the Athenians love to worship. They love to worship. And they worship literally everything. (laughs) If you can think of it, there was a god for it. Wheat, dance, naps, slumber, taxes, death, life, uh, Farming, water, procreation, death for your enemies. There was a God for it. And they built an altar for it, and they would sacrifice to it. They loved to worship. And so when Paul, who knows Yahweh, walks into this town, has spending some time there, and he sees not just tens, not just hundreds, but thousands of little temples. He's like, something's up here. (laughs) And we should catch wind of that. Their idol worship was so profound, they carved it into buildings. If you ever get the chance to go to Greece, do it. Because it makes part of the New Testament really come alive for you in a new and profound way. This is just one picture of Athens. One picture of one city from the Greek and then the Roman Empire. And they literally carved their idols, the things that they would sacrifice to, into their walls, into their windows, into their steps, into fountains, into archways, into everything. You cannot walk through a still intact ancient city of Greece and an ancient city of Rome without literally seeing idols everywhere. It paints us this picture that they were really worshipers, but worshiping what? As we move on, oh, you're going to have to clear the background for me, Sam, because it stumbled. Um, as we move on, we see that Paul is sharing the, the good news of the gospel in the synagogues and with the marketplace people. Right? It's what he normally does every time he goes into a city and it catches the attention of people. And it catches the attention of two particular groups of people, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Greek philosophers. I hope you caught it in our passage that the Greek people loved to talk. And talk about what? Nothing. So many people have a gripe with philosophy, and I get it to a certain extent. It has its uses. But at the end of the day, when they build literal cities and build literal places in those cities to meet on high mountaintops to just talk about nothing, I think we've missed the point, right? The Epicureans and the Stoics are two groups of people who do this. They love the Aeropagus, that meeting place, that talking place where new ideas were shared and debated and argued to see who was the one who actually understood what is going on in the world. They're looking for security. They're looking for purpose. This is where their focus is. They're so focused, they built a a monument to it. They built a meeting hall to it. And it stood the test of time. The Epicureans are are consumed with being pleasure-seeking fanatics. If you could own it, if you could buy it, if you could huff it or snuff it or anything with it, they did it. They did it. If you could own it or if you could sleep with it, if you could sell it and make money off of it. They did it. The Epicureans are consumed with pleasure. To them, the end goal of life is just to be happy. Sound familiar? The Stoics are literally on the opposite side of that chain. They think the world, and especially the material world, is corrupt. It's going to tear us down, and so they do their best to be master over it, to control their emotions, to not let, not let anything get a reaction out of them. This is where we get the word, oh, you're such a stoic. You're so stone-faced. It was from the Stoics. So you have these two groups of people who are very much on opposite sides of the spectrum, looking for security, looking for purpose, looking for where their focus should be. The Stoics think, remove myself from the world. The Epicureans think, take everything and anything they got. And both of these groups of people find what Paul has to share very confusing, very curious, but also kind of mocking them, right? What's this babbler talking about? What's this new guy in town think he's sharing with us? All right, we go to the Oropagus. We talk with all the other people who know all the stuff that they know, and we talk with all the people that know what they're doing. What's this new guy in town got to share? But, if you noticed, what catches their attention is what Paul says in verse 18. Preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Resurrection is not something that's in their control. And so it catches their attention. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You're talking about a thing that we can't own. You're talking about a thing that is unknown to us. What are you talking about resurrection? People don't come back from the dead. That's not a thing. You believe that? Okay, come talk to us about that. Why do you believe that? It catches their attention. Friends, curiosity is one of the greatest open doors and windows into the vehicle and the mission of the Spirit. You will see that time and time again, not only in Scripture, but in our lives, that the curious are the ones who, whether they fully believe it or not, are ready to receive the gospel. And Paul knows that, again, that discernment. So he strikes. He takes that invitation to the Oropagus, and he goes and he preaches a very interesting sermon that he doesn't get to finish. This is the Oropagus, set high on a hill, so that all can see when the leading men, and sometimes leading women, would come and would debate. And so Paul is literally ascending to a place of honor. He is ascending somewhere that probably would have made him catch his breath because he has to hike up a hill, but also would give him pause. He's walking into the lion's den. He's walking into the place where these are the people who are probably telling those to build the idols, right? the Epicureans, the Stoics, all these philosophers are the ones who would eventually come down and say, hey, you know what, we probably forgot a god. Let's go build a a temple, you know, an idol temple altar thing over there for the god of leaves. And someone would be like, yep, and we get the stone crafters, the masons, and they go do that. This is a lot of where those decisions came from. Paul knows that. So Paul walks in armed to the teeth, ready to debate. I love it. This is one of my favorite times we get to see Paul because Paul sometimes is meek. Appropriately so. Paul sometimes is a little held back. Appropriately so. He doesn't want to scare off his opponents. But he knows that he's walking into a place full of intellectuals in the good sense and in the bad sense. And Paul, if anything, is an intellectual. So he's ready to fight. And so he comes ready to fight. And he starts talking about the unknown God. He says to them, Athenians, when I was walking through your town, I saw that you had this altar, and it just says to the unknown God. What Paul is saying there and what the Athenians pick up on is that, hey, you wanted an insurance policy. You want to make sure you didn't make some kind of deity that you forgot mad. So, hey, if we forgot you guys up there or down there or wherever, sorry, you get covered under the unknown God. That's that's you guys. We didn't forget you, we promise, right? Paul knows that. Because they're afraid. They're afraid of the unknown. They're little kids in the dark. And Paul's pointing that out to them. This unknown God that you worship, or claim to worship, I know him. And you can know him too. He has a name. We don't don't see Paul actually say Yahweh in this passage, but he alludes to it with these Greek words, theos and kairos, or kairos. I know sometimes learning dead ancient language stuff isn't necessarily the funnest thing. I get it. But I'm going to spend just a minute on this because it matters. Theos is this idea of, a, of someone supreme, a deity. It's a common word in the Greek language. Anytime they had a, a god that they served, a little g, that's what would show up in the Greek language. This is a theos. right? So Paul starts off with a, hey, you're talking about an unknown theos, deity. But I know this Theos, capital T, big G. I know him. This God who made everything. He stops using the word Theos when he gets to that point of the passage. To make it clear, just in case I'm being a little vague. Verse 23, for I pass along and observe the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this description to the unknown Theos. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you, this, the Theos who made the world and everything in it being kyros, kairos, however you want to say it. Lord. Paul switches his words in that moment. Why? He's trying to get their attention. You worship something out of an insurance policy because you want to make sure that you're safe because your kids being afraid of the dark. Paul saying to them, you have nothing to be afraid of of the dark. There is this Lord, this master over all, And his mastery overall is not disputable. It's actually good that he's in that place. Paul goes into this diatribe, this little, it's the bulk of this part of the sermon, where he talks about, hey, this unknown God is the one in charge, and it's good that he's in charge. He made everything. He doesn't have a temple that you can build him that he lives in. Think back to the idols. He doesn't need to be served by human hands Paul's pointing out that isn't it ironic that you you worship deities, but somehow they need your sacrifices? Who seems to be dependent on whom in that relationship? Paul's pointing out very, very, uh, in a very linear kind of way, he's deconstructing their argument. This thing that you worship, you don't really worship. This thing that you think brings you safety doesn't really bring you safety. This thing that you claim is going to give you security And focus and purpose doesn't do it. And you know that actually, which is why you have it in the first place. Your kids running around in the dark, afraid of the unknown. But Paul says, you don't have to be afraid. This God is not unknown. You can see his fingerprints and his DNA all over creation. He alludes to Genesis 1-1 where it says, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God made everything. He later alludes down in Genesis 2:4, when he started, right before the part of the passage where he starts to rest, he says he looks at all that he has made, all of it. He's called it good. He's called it good. Only the one who creates can call his creation good. But then we move on to he alludes to Colossians 1 where he's talking about Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the unknown God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Paul is making very clear to them, this mystery that you've been waiting to be revealed has been revealed. You missed it, but you don't have to keep missing it. It's Jesus. He is that God, big G, who stands alone, who's peerless and matchless. I I can't prove it, but I have to believe that in the larger conversation that Paul has with the Athenians, at some point he's gonna reference Job 38 and 39. Job is one of my favorite books in the Bible. It's one of the most difficult books to understand and I definitely don't claim to understand all of it. But it's one of my favorite books in the Bible. One, because it talks about friendship. But two, because it also talks about God in a very unique way. And when God finally joins the conversation in Job 38, 39, he says to Job and all of his friends, if you know how the story goes, Were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Were you there when I store up the rains and the storehouses in the heavens? Are you there giving direction to the lightning bolt to go exactly where it goes? Do you put the hook in Leviathan's nose? Do you tell the waves when to go in and when to come out? Do you cause the wind to blow left and right? Do you? Oh, you don't. That's right, because I do. It seems really brash. It seems really harsh, but it's not. Because God knows the best thing for us is for us to be reminded we're not in charge. Whenever we vain, in vain, and fail, very fail feeble attempts to try and be in charge, we get hurt, and we just hurt. But God says, that's never how it's supposed to be. I am in charge. Down to subatomic atoms, all the way to black holes in the distant universe. I hold it all. Have you ever really thought about that? Have you ever, ever really tried to ponder the mystery that is creation as we know it? Do it long enough and you realize you have to stop because you're going to fry your brain. It's just too big to understand. But it's a worthwhile endeavor doing, church, because it gets us to realize this can't be an accident. There's too much design behind it. And think of the being who had the power to design it. Holy smokes. Holy smokes. That's a powerful God. That's a big God. That's an almighty God. And that is what Paul wants them to catch. You don't have to be afraid of the unknown. The thing that you think is lurking out there isn't lurking out there. The thing that is actually out there is the one that covers the illusion of the unknown. It covers your fear. It takes care of it. It actually protects and secures. It can deal with all of that because it all sits under him. And then Paul moves on. He's kind of dealt with their insecurity a little bit. He's dealt with their arrogancy and brashness a little bit, right? You get knocked down a peg when you decide that all of your free time goes to this city on a hill, I'm sorry, this building on a hill, and you're just going to talk about the latest idea. And Paul says, you can spend an eternity up there. You'll never even scratch the surface of how much wisdom and power and strength God has. So take it down a notch. And it's okay, it's good that it takes down a notch. But then he moves moves on. After he makes sure they understand that humility is important and that God's supremacy keeps us humble, he moves on to talk about this, purpose and focus. What is the purpose of man? Some college kids came over our house last week, and we introduced them to this idea that this this idea is what we're going to talk about all summer with our college kids and with our high school kids. This is the idea we're going to talk about all summer. What is my purpose? What is it? Yeah, I can read the Bible and I can ask God and I can get a general sense of purpose, but what's the specific underneath it? How is specifically God wanting me to live out that big, grand purpose he has designed for all of us? It's a timely question in the lives of our young people. And to be honest, it's a timely question in most of our lives, no matter how old you actually are. You want to have purpose. Your soul craves it. You do not want to wander through life aimless, wasting the time and the breath and the energy and effort that you have, right? I don't think any of us want that. You don't have to necessarily achieve. You don't have to just build a giant empire or anything like that. But you want to know that when you wake up in the morning and your head hits the pillow at night, your day counted for something. It mattered that you were alive and you did what you did. We want that, and God created us to have that desire. And God created us, to ha- for us for us to have that desire fulfilled in him. Paul preaches to the Athenians. I lost this. I'll just do it by memory. He says to them, God has allotted the time and places for mankind to live. Why? So they can toil endlessly under the sun? Like it says in Ecclesiastes, maybe. But that's not what Paul says here. Paul says that they may seek God and feel around for him and find him. Friends, if God has a purpose for you, both general and specific, if he never made that clear to you, would that not be cruel? Could you imagine giving instructions to your kids, to a friend, to a coworker, for a task you know they have never done before and you give them no instruction? Just do it. That would be cruel. That would be unkind and unloving. But that's not true of our God. He makes clear through his Holy Spirit and through his word the purposes of mankind. And in this passage, he highlights that they may seek God, feel around for him, and find him. The unknown God is looking to be found. The unknown God, right? You have to put on your ears if you're a little kid again, especially if you're an Athenian. They see this unknownness. They're afraid of it. And God says that unknownness is looking to be found. It's not a mystery waiting to be shrouded forever. That he came and put on flesh, right? It's the gospel. It's Jesus. It's the word. It's all that we know and believe and preach and teach and struggle to get deep down inside so that it stays real and changes everything. This unknownness, this mystery, we don't have to be afraid of. It wants to be found. Jesus says in both Matthew and Luke, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. You who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more your perfect heavenly father will give to those who are seeking him? Give them the gift of the Holy Spirit. God is looking to be found. Have you ever felt like he isn't? Have you ever felt like the dark is too hard to confront because it keeps pushing back? Have you ever thought, God wants nothing to do with me? friends definitively paul wants to make make it very clear for us god is looking to be found not just once not just twice every second that you draw breath he is looking to be found that is our purpose and that is a good one that is a soul-filling life-changing blood invigorating good purpose and it changes everything and he wants them to get that because they are scared of the dark they're scared of the unknown You're a little less scared of that which could hurt you, potentially, when you know the path that you walk. The dark becomes a little more scarier. I'm sorry, the dark becomes a little less scarier when you know how to get through it, when you know it's on the other side. And that's what Paul wants to get to them. And then it takes kind of a turn, to be quite honest. Right? Humility, cool, that makes sense. The supremacy of God keeps us humble, and that's good. When we get arrogant, we get in trouble. The supremacy of God gives us purpose. Wow, God in his grandness and his bigness and his beautifulness has given me life and purpose. I'm not an accident, I'm not a waste of space, I'm not just occupying time until I die and then someone forgets about me. He's given me purpose, cool. He's given me focus that I should seek him and in seeking him find life. And then he talks about the righteous judge. God, it's, honestly, we can say that out loud. It's okay. It seems like kind of like a pivot. Like, Paul, what are you doing? You have, you have them right there on the edge of the seats, right? You're giving them good stuff, Talk about God, talk about supremacy, creation, all that kind of stuff. Yes, you're speaking their language. You're winning the argument. You're preaching a good sermon. What the heck are you bringing up righteousness and the divine judge and repentance? We could be honest. A lot of times we are afraid to bring that up in conversations because we go, "Oh, okay, you're that kind of person. Everyone gets scared of the fire and the hell and the brimstone and everything I do is just a sin and I'm just going to go to hell if I don't find Jesus. Right, we get scared to bring that up with people. As if it isn't true. We get scared, yes, partially because we don't want to be seen as the people who are not loving. We don't want to see, be seen as the people who are just heaping condemnation, which we are not called to do. But watch the way Paul talks about this. Now I do need to find it again because I don't have this part memorized. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that divine being is like gold or silver or stone. God, You didn't make God, God made you the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has resurrected. How did he start off that part? He called them God's what? Offspring. This is not a matter to be handled between a far distant God and someone who's in rebellion with him. This is a matter to be handled between a good father and his wayward children. That paints a very different picture that paints a very different picture. All you have to do is think about the the parable of the prodigal son. When that son finally comes home, does that father rush out and beat him like he should? (laughs) No. If you know anything about that that parable, you know that when that son left home, he took about 33% of that father's inheritance. Could you imagine getting to the age of retirement and then one of your kids came up to you and said, I need 33% of all the money you ever made and you're not getting a cent back your blood's boiling. Come on, let's be honest. You'd be like, "Uh, excuse me? (laughs) No. Yet when that son comes running back, he doesn't get the sandal to the head. He doesn't get the (sighs) chunkla. He gets a hug. He gets a ring on his finger and a robe around his arms. Mind you, he definitely does get disciplined. We don't see it in the story, but Proverbs tells us the father who loves their children disciplines. He definitely got disciplined. But that father gives him a hug a ring on his finger and a robe around his shoulders. He says, I've been looking for you, and I'm so glad you found me. I'm so glad I found you. We get scared of this idea of repentance and righteous judge and all that kind of stuff because it feels like God's just up there waiting to slam us down. That's why we're really afraid of that. We're afraid of this unknown idea. Okay, when's God gonna pull out the rug from underneath me and just, ha, gotcha. All that love, all that mercy, all the forgiveness, it was just a joke, you don't deserve it. Boom, be in your place. That's what we think God's going to do. That's what we believe. That's what people hear when we talk about that kind of stuff. But that's not what God is saying here through Paul. Paul is saying, yes, there will be a day of righteous judgment. He doesn't mince words with them. But to be afraid of the day that does not come yet, the unknown, when today you have a chance to meet face to face with this God, seems foolishness. It's like an athlete worried about a a, a competition, event, or sport, whatever they have, six months down the road that they're not going to be prepared when they have five months and 30 days to get ready for it. Why are you so focused on the thing that hasn't come yet when you have today to make a difference for your tomorrow? They are so preoccupied about what is out there that Paul needs to draw them back in and help them realize today is the day the Lord has made. Today is the day this God is looking to meet with you. Today is the day that he's hoping to change you. Today is the day that, yes, if appropriate, which it is in all of our lives, he's calling you to repentance, not just because he needs your groveling, but because it's good for you. And it sets you in right relationship with him again. And it makes it it accessible for his love and his mercy to flow. If a river is dammed by a bunch of rocks, how is it the only way that the water's going to flow again? You've got to take the rocks out. Right? Hate. Sin all you want. Be worried about it. Be fearful about it all you want. That river's never going to flow until those rocks get moved. And Paul is drawing their attention to that. Hey, repent. It's okay. God's not sitting up there with a lightning bolt like you think Zeus is. He's sitting up there waiting for open arms, giving you message after message after message. I am looking for you. Are you looking for me? I know you're afraid, I can deal with that. Hey, I know you're uncertain, I can give you purpose. Hey, I know you're confused, I can give you clarity. Hey, I know you don't feel safe, I can give you protection. Hey, I know that all this unknown is causing you to try and be a master of the world. That's not good for you. I'm the master of the world. Let me be the master of your world. Right? So who is this righteous judge? It's Jesus, whom Paul says, we know is the righteous judge because he's resurrected from the dead back to the first thing that brought them curious in the first place. You see how smart Paul is? He's a good orator. He's a good debater. He brings them right back to the beginning of the thing that drew them in in the first place. He does not want to squander that curiosity that they had. He brings them back to the resurrection. But our passage makes it very clear for us what Paul had to say was too much for most of them. Ah, resurrection, the, you know, people coming back to life, which God made that happen. Is it even possible? Ah, it's too much. Repentance, righteousness, um, I don't want to talk about that. Unknown God, he's looking to be found, mm, I don't know about that. It's too much for some of them. You have to remember, the Stoics believe that all material is bad, so for someone to come back from the dead, for someone to go from what they think is bad to good to then back to bad, they don't like resurrection. They're like, no, 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 death's take ticket out. Why would we want to come back? I don't want any association with a God who somehow can raise people from the dead. No, thank you. The Epicureans, repentance? What I'm doing could possibly be bad for me and my soul and for others and the soul of others? Nah. You don't know what you're talking about, Paul. I'm good. For some, it's too much. But for a handful of others, this is just the ticket that they need this is just the opening that they were looking for. And that's what Paul realizes. Friends, I don't know about you, but if you ever find yourself in a situation where it seems hopeless, and it seems silly to share the truth of the gospel because you feel like no one's listening, you never really know who's listening. One of, the th- one of my favorite things that I realized when I was a college student is I would go either on YouTube or I would go see in person uh, atheists and Christian apologists debate. Not necessarily because I wanted to hear what their topics were about, I knew my faith in Jesus. I wasn't going to be swayed necessarily, but I loved watching these men and women have arguments. Some of them were civil, some of them were actually really polite, and I wish that's the way most people had conversation. And some of them were just bloodfest with words, which drew the most crowds, unfortunately. But one day I got a chance to ask one of these Christian apologists, why do you have these debates with atheists knowing they're probably never gonna change their minds? And he says, I'm not arguing him. I'm saying what I'm saying for all the people in the crowd who are unsure. And I went, whoa, what a different viewpoint. Paul's saying what he's got to say, not because he necessarily needs a tally count. How many people did I preach the gospel to today? Or how many people did God use me to save? No, he's shooting a shot because the shot matters. He matters, purpose, right? That he would seek God. He would help others seek this God. And some do believe. History tells us that some become many in the city of Athens. Friends, we have that same opportunity. The dark, the unknown, wants to convince us it's bigger and badder and scarier than us. God says, there's nothing out there that's bigger or badder or scarier than me. Nothing. 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 So what are we going to do about it? Given this opportunity, given this ticket to meet with I'll use Paul's words, this unknown God who's actually not unknown. To meet with this Yahweh, this Jesus, this Theos, this Kyrios, this Kairos. To meet with this creator who has revealed himself, who has expressed in his word and through his people, I want to meet with you. What do we do with that? We have a choice to submit and trust, to love and obey, or to carry on in our own strength. A lot of times, the application of a sermon sometimes is kind of nebulous. It's kind of mysterious. It's kind of, hmm, if I do it or or don't do it today, what does that change if I do it or don't do it tonight? Or in a day. Or in a week, or in a month, or in a year. Sometimes it's a little gray, because all of our journeys are unique, as we are hopefully moving towards Jesus. This, friends, is not gray, and let me explain i Am I saying this is your only opportunity? No. By God's grace, you will continue to keep drawing breath, and every time you, have, you draw breath, you have another opportunity. And I pray, honestly, for all of you, a lot more opportunities, and a lot more opportunities. Long life for us, that we will be with each other and with him. But here's what I also know to be true. When those Epicureans, when those Stoics, when those philosophers either walked out of the Oropagus or Paul finished his sermon and he walked away, they just moved on to the things that they were already chasing and pursuing, to the things that they were already consumed with. Remember, they would go to the oropagus to talk about all the new shiny things. They're like ravens, constantly swooping down and picking up pearls, which usually are just children's marbles. They think what they have is so valuable. They think that what they have is so profound. They think what they have will keep them safe, will keep them secure, will be their insurance policy will change their worlds, will allow them to be the masters of the things that they are afraid will be masters over them. Friends, truth doesn't need you to believe in it in order to be true. It doesn't. What loses out in that equation is you. Not God. Not truth. So we have a choice. Even if it's a minuscule, unseen to the human eye, step forward. And yes, I actually did just take a step forward. So if you couldn't tell, that's the point. We have a choice to say to God, all right, God, I got a lot going on. You know, go through the alphabet, go through the alphabet back, start doing double letters if you have to. I got a lot going on. And you know it. I need you. I need you more than the air that I breathe. I need you more than the water that I drink. I need you more than shelter and friendship. I need you more than community and safety. I need you because all those things derive from you. God, you say you made everything. That includes me. Don't let me down. Please don't let me down. Don't be far. Don't be unknown. Don't be mysterious. Draw near and change me. Help me to not be afraid. Help me to let go of the things that I think will keep me safe that are actually rotting me from the inside out. Help me to let go of the things that promise to give me purpose. When in actuality, they're just distracting me from the things that you are calling me to. God, help me. Help me to be, get out of my own thoughts and emotions. Help me to see where you are speaking to me. Help me. God, I seek you and I surrender. I trust you. And where applicable, I repent. And watch. I'm allowed to say this, not because I'm a pastor, but because I've read my Bible. Watch as God does the thing he promised to do. It's not on me to make God. Fulfill his promises in your life. It's on him. And I'm allowed to say that because he's never failed. God has a perfect track record when it comes to this kind of thing. Will we let him work in our lives? Will we let him do the thing he so desperately wants to do? And listen, I'm not even saying anything specific. I'm saying let him do the thing in your life that he wants to do, and you already know what I'm talking about. How? Because he's been trying to do it. Friends, today when we submit and trust and find that when we look at this God who is bigger than we can possibly imagine or contain, we find purpose, we find freedom, we find security, we find love, we find safety. Yes, we find forgiveness of sins, but we find life. It is no wonder that Paul talks about this God who makes everything. Because he is the one who gives life. John 10.10. I have come that they may have life and life to the fullest. Let's pray, church. God, meet with us. That's simply my prayer in this moment. Meet with us. Continue to reveal yourself. Let us not be afraid of the things that would keep us from you. Let us not give in to the things that speak a poor word. Jesus, we ask and pray. Make yourself known in this moment through your spirit. Meet with us.